0: Well, good morning. So I have to confess, one of my biggest fears in preaching is that I'm going to have to go to the bathroom in the middle of my sermon, and uh, so I saw whenever I went back there, Randy was like, he's, he's running away, he's leaving, so no, I was just uh, wanting to make sure that I didn't end up needing to go to the bathroom in the middle of my sermon, because that is a huge fear, so... All right, so if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verse, uh, starting in verse 12. We're going to read Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 24. Again, that's Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 24. It says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place in the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we just humble ourselves. Lord, we just ask that uh, you would dwell in this place, Lord, that our worship would be pleasing to you, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray um, that over the next period of time, Lord, that you would speak through me, that the words that would come out of my mouth, Lord, would be yours, that this would be your message, Lord, that that it wouldn't be mine, Lord, that it would be yours, that you would guide my words, that you would guide my thoughts. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive the message, Lord, that we would not be uh, prideful or, or... um, Lord, that we would just be humbled, that we would hear your voice. Lord, we want more than anything that our lives glorify you. Lord, that we um, hear you say one day, Lord, um, well done, good and faithful service. That's that's what our, our, our lives aim towards. Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, let's kind of recap our journey so far. So a couple of weeks ago, we started talking about how we were going to journey through Romans, and the goal was to see a revival. We were looking to see a revival first in our hearts, second in this church, and then ultimately in the community. And so um, we talked about the fact that uh, when Adam and Eve broke the world, God promised redemption, the first Uh, promise of the Messiah came immediately after the um, uh, Adam and Eve sinned and the fall of man happened uh, when God said that he would bring a seed from the woman who would uh, stamp the serpent's head so that's the first uh, first Uh, Prophecy of the Messiah to come So uh, God has been faithful And we see through that that Christianity And the birth of Christ um, And his death and resurrection Is the fulfillment of that promise And so um, we see that Christianity Again we talked about it's not a new religion It's not set apart from Judaism It is the fulfillment Of all of the prophecy From the Old Testament We are the fulfillment of Judaism So we're not a new religion Um, As recipients of God's mercy and his grace we are obligated to one another because that's what God has commanded. And we talked about how uh, in um, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, Paul talked about the fact that he had longed to go to Rome, but he had been prevented, and now he was going to be able to come, uh, and his goal was that he would be able to impart to them a gift and that they would be mutually encouraged by one another. So we see that we also are obligated to one another, Uh, We talked about the fact that we should live our lives in a manner that shows our faith. Uh, Christianity is not a secretive lifestyle. We can't be Sunday morning Christians. Uh, Coming in and and checking in on a Sunday morning in a church building does not qualify you as a Christian. Uh, Being a Christian uh, is something that uh, uh, weaves its way into every decision that we make. We must make all of our decisions through the lens of the gospel. Okay. We talked about that the gospel is the good news that God has made a way for us in spite of the fact that we deserve death. And we talked about the fact that all throughout the Old Testament we see again and again and again and again that we cannot save ourselves. Every time somebody is raised up and we expect them to be the hero of the story that leads humanity into glory, we see that hero fall. We see it in Noah, we see it in Abraham, we see it in David, we see it all through scripture. Um, And the gospel, the good news is that God dwelled in man and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We talked about that. We talked about that. The fact that he did that was a revelation to us of his righteousness, that every time that we had been unfaithful and we've walked away from his, uh, his, his word, we have walked away from the blessings that he blessed us and we were unfaithful to that, God, in turn, rather than uh, abandoning us, has made a way again and again and again. This morning we talked about the fact in, in, in Acts, it talks about that God did not leave himself without a witness. And so all throughout there was always a remnant that God preserved, and he was faithful when we were not. Okay. Um, and then in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we talked about the fact that a, a verdict was rendered and that uh, we were all unrighteous. Uh, Paul lays out from 18 verse 18 through 32 that there is a broken road, that sin takes us down. Um, and that broken, that that those verses were both a warning to us, so that we could examine our own lives and make sure that we're not on that path. But it was also evidence that society was lost. It was further evidence um, that we were incapable, um, because Paul makes it very clear that it is self-evident that we are dead. It doesn't take much looking around at society and seeing the state that things are in. To, to know that that we are we are horribly and hopelessly lost, okay? And because it's self-evident, we're without excuse. and we're without grounds to stand in judgment of one another. We all sin, we all do the same things, and so um, we're without grounds, we're without excuse. This levels the field, it removes the stumbling blocks. You can't, you can't stand and say as a Gentile, well, I didn't know, I don't have the law. As a Jew, you, you can't stand and say, well, we're better than you guys. There's, there's, there's a level ground, there's no stumbling blocks. Um, and because of that, Paul laid out what our response should be. It says in, in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, we talked about last week, that uh, God's kindness should lead us to repentance. Okay, um, And then we also saw in verses 5 through 11 that um, the tree will produce its fruit. In the end, uh, good will be glorified and evil will be punished. So that brings us uh, to where we are in... Um, Romans chapter 2 verse 12 through uh, 12 and 13 we see all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And so what we see is that in society, there is this idea of moral relativism, that there's no such thing as absolute truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. You can't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. I can't tell you that what you're doing is wrong because there's no truth. And and we see right here in 12 and 13 that that just doesn't exist. All are going to be judged. Whether you have the law, whether you don't have the law, there is a truth. It is absolute, and there's no escaping it. We can't pretend um, that that we have something, uh, some some claim against this truth. And that's what Paul then goes on to do in the next two sections, is he systematically dismantles arguments against that. Uh, And the first argument, starting in verse 14, is this idea, this feigned innocence that, well, I just I didn't know. In uh, verse 14 through 16, he says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Okay, and so what we see here is that the law is written on our hearts okay there's there's the conscious inside us that tells us we know right and wrong, and if you study culture c s Lewis uh, made this argument in mere Christianity so well, if you study culture, yeah, there are differences in what cultures throughout history have thought were okay and not okay. But there is a core to all cultures that, that transcends them um, of, of this idea of right and wrong. Um, you know, like the Roman Colosseum brutality uh, in, in, in gladiators fighting against one another, we would consider that completely abhorrent. But um, even in Rome, murdering, because that wasn't considered murder, that was sport. It was just sport to, to the death. Um, even Romans would consider murder wrong. Just as we consider murder wrong, there are certain things you don't have to be told they're wrong. You know they're wrong. And so um, we see that that law is written on our consciences. And so we see that sometimes our consciences, our consciences uh, accuse us um, whenever we know that we've done something contrary to what we know to be right. And at other times, it def- excuse me it defends us. And so there were a couple of things that I got out of this. Let's, let's take, you know, you've got God's holy standard of what it takes to be righteous. Because what it takes to dwell in God's presence is holiness. We are absolutely una- uh, unable to attain that holiness, which is why Christ came. Okay? So if you could live a perfect life, you could, you could be holy, you could be with God, but because we're incapable, we have to claim Christ's life. So, um, But let's set that standard aside for just a moment, and let's talk about our own standards. We all have our own standard of what good and bad are, what right and wrong are. Um, if we allow culture to influence us and we we begin to, to slack away from God's standards, what we see is that Even our own standard of right and wrong, we're unable to uphold at all times. We all, probably all of us in this room, believe that lying is wrong. And we have all probably in this room lied multiple times. You know, we all in this room probably think that it's wrong to talk about one another behind each other's backs. And we all have probably in this room done it. And so even our own standard of righteousness, we can't uphold. How much more so are we incapable of upholding the standard that God has set for us? Does that make sense? Okay. And so that's the first argument that Paul dismantles. He says, no, you can't claim innocence. You know right and wrong. It's self-evident. And so you can't claim this innocence. You can't even uphold your own standard. So so don't, don't pretend That you're going to stand before God and say, well, I didn't know. I didn't have the law. I was a Gentile. It's not going to work. And then the next thing that he dismantles, starting in verse 17, he says, Now if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, A teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And so he moves on from the Gentiles who are uh, claiming that, well, we, we didn't have the law, into the Jewish people who are arguing that they are more righteous because God has blessed them and given them the law and given them the prophets and given them the kings. And... He then addresses and dismantles their self righteousness, where they think that you know they've become haughty. Now, this section is written to the Jews, but in our day and age, I really believe it's far more applicable to us as Christians because um, we know. Uh, right and wrong. We know what the New Testament says. We've been given the Bible. We've been given the holy revelation. And uh, so I look at this and I see that um, the Paul's, Paul's argument to the Gentiles would be an argument made to non-believers, people that don't, you know, well, we didn't know. Makes sense. And this argument made to the Jewish people would apply more to us okay? And so, um, God goes on and he says, you know, you're standing up as if you've somehow earned your standing, but let's break it down. Let's convict you of what you've done. Um, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Right there. Let's talk about our standard versus God's standard. Okay. Um, up in verse uh, 16, it says that this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets. And that's the point that I want to talk about. Christ took the standard of not doing to what is in the heart. Christ said, not only is it a sin to commit adultery, it's a, it, you've committed adultery if you've lusted after a woman. And so what I would say, again, is we have this standard where we don't want to be that way, but... I would say that probably every one of us in, in this room at some point in our life have lusted after someone else. Um, it's, just, it's just real. Okay, And so he said, you are you, not righteous. You haven't earned anything. You have no standing. You who um, abhor idols, do you rob temples. That's a throwback to what's written in uh, Malachi, where he says that uh, you, rob temple, uh, you, you, know, you rob God, but yet you say to me, how do you rob me? And that's in the tithes and offerings. When we withhold those things that God has given us, we, we've become people that rob God. So do we rob temples? Yeah, I'd say that most of us at least at some point have. We've held back our, our trust in God and we've said, you know, I, I need them. I mean, I know I know personally there have been multiple times in my life where I'm like, man, I can't imagine tithing 10%. I can't make it on what I've got. How in the world am I going to make it on less than what I've got? You know, and that's a lack of trust. And so once again, Paul comes in and he knocks us off our pedestal and he says, you have nothing to boast In fact, you're more guilty than the Gentiles because it's been laid out for you. You know what you're supposed to do. They have their conscience, but you have the law. You know exactly what to do. And so you're more guilty than they are. And so you might be asking, why do I keep talking about this? Why have we spent so – why wasn't this one sermon? Why didn't we burn through the first three chapters in one sermon? Why have we spent so much time on this? And I'm glad that you asked because it's in my notes. That's what I was going to answer for you. So I like it when you guys ask questions that I'm going to answer. And the reason is because we really – we have to come to a place where we let go of those things. I keep coming back to it over and over and over, and we've spent so much time here because it is the most important thing that you can understand. If you want to come to salvation, you have to let go of the notion that you've done something for it. You haven't. You can't. And as long as you hold on to that, you're going to try to earn your salvation For the rest of your life, you're going to be worried about, did I do the wrong thing? Did I do the right thing? Do I deserve it? Later on in Romans, Paul's going to talk about the fact that if I work for wages, my wages aren't a gift to me. They're owed to me. And if you work for your salvation in your mind, in your heart, in the deep places, you feel like your salvation is owed to you. And it's not. What's owed to you is death. For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. And so we, we spend so much time right here because it's, it's so important. And we're not done. We've got a couple more weeks of, of dwelling in this because Paul spent so much time at the beginning of this letter really trying to convict everybody. You're all guilty. And so the last thing that we see here in this text is, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And that's another thing that we've talked about, is that one of the things that society um, claims about Christianity so often is that we're hypocritical. We do the things that we preach against. And like I've told you in the past, I don't think it's the hypocrisy that really bothers them. I think it's um, the fact that we're hypocritical. We do these things, and then we act like we don't, which is what we see here that that the Jews are doing. They're claiming that they have this divine revelation from God, that they're somehow above the Gentiles. They're looking down on the Gentiles. Because if you remember, Paul's writing to a church that has been reintegrated after five years of just being Gentiles. The Jews had been cast out of Rome. After five years of that, the Jews have reintegrated into the church. And so you have this divided church where the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians are arguing about what it takes to be righteous. And Uh, Again, Paul's coming in and he's just leveling the playing field and saying, get off your soapbox, stop making excuses, you need to be unified. And you need to be unified because we have a mission. The way that your church, the way that this body in Rome is acting is blaspheming, is causing the Gentiles to blaspheme us. Understand, Paul was planning to use the church in Rome as a staging ground for his mission to go further to Spain. So Paul was constantly thinking about, how do I continue to move the gospel further and further and further? And so that's the question that we have to ask ourselves throughout the week in our daily lives. Are we being hypocritical? Are we lying about the way that we are? Are we acting this holier-than-thou? Are we the people that this community looks at and says, that's why I'm not a Christian? I have a very, very, very close friend of mine that's not a believer and when we first met, we talked over years about why he wasn't a believer. And he said, you know, I wasn't a believer because early on in high school, I found out Christians were no different than anyone else. They went to church, and then they bullied other kids at school. They did all the same things, and they're just they're no different. And he said, you guys are the first people I've ever met that made me question that. And, and he hasn't surrendered his life to the Lord yet, but it's a sad indictment on us as Christians, that we have people that look at us and say, "Why in the world would I want to follow Jesus?" We're supposed to be that light. And again, it's why I've said over and over and over, we can't run from sinful things. Jesus didn't. He ate with uh, prostitutes, with tax collectors who were considered thieves. He he got down into the mess when the woman was caught in adultery. He didn't even lecture her. He said, "Go and sin no more." Where are your accusers? I don't accuse you either. She wasn't. She wasn't. Again, she wasn't being accused of it. She was caught. They knew she did it, and the law said that she should be stoned. And Jesus said, "If you, like, he who hath no sin, cast the first stone." And yet, we as Christians, we do these things. We sin, and then we get out and we judge the world. We've become, we've, we've made the, the folks that are lost our enemies. And I've come to understand that honestly, the, the, the people in the world that are ra- rallying against me, the, the, the gay rights movement, the, the um, um, atheists, all of these people that, that have al- almost the antithesis of my beliefs, they're not my enemies. And I have to stop treating them like they're my enemies, because I'll never win them. They're prisoners of war. That's what they are. The enemy has captured them, and he has got them in his camp. They've got this Stockholm Syndrome, where they've fallen in love with their captor, but they don't even realize that they're prisoners. So why am I fighting them? My goal is to fight the enemy, and free the prisoner. Does that make sense? We can't do that if we stand on our soapbox, if we condemn the world, if we if we if we try to separate ourselves from the world, the thing that separates us is our love.